This is a reading from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in the battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, everyone. I had a class once uh, with a professor uh, who had a wonderful name, uh, Buzz McNutt. <laughs> Solid, right? Uh, and Buzz once said something uh, to me about, uh, or once said something about reading the prophets uh, that I've never forgotten. Uh, and before I tell you what he said, I want to tell you something else about Buzz. Buzz had a son. Uh, that I was friends with, and once uh, while, while Buzz's son was on uh, spring break in Mexico, uh, he was driving his Jeep on the beach with a group of friends, and the Jeep got stuck in some soft sand, and uh, they, they couldn't get it going. So everyone got out of the car, and they all tried to push, and yet I, even as they pushed, the, uh, the, the Jeep sunk a little deeper into the sand, and as they revved, uh, it sunk a little deeper into the sand. And so all these friends who had just been riding together on the beach in Mexico on spring break are now sitting there watching this Jeep uh, that is stuck in the sand. They tried and they tried, but they could not get the Jeep free, and eventually what what happens? The tide comes in and carries the Jeep out to sea. He is the only person, the son of Buzz McNutt, the only person I've ever known to lose a car to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, I remember the picture vividly because it was on the front page of our school newspaper, which was hilarious. Um, and I think about the wide range of emotions that those fellows must have felt on that particular day. There they are, wind in the hair, driving windows down on the Pacific Ocean, spring break in Mexico, sun shining, life stretching out before them, and then they feel the car get stuck. And then they get out and try to get it free. And then like you have that like moment where people are suggesting different ideas and none of them seem to be working. Uh, and then the tide starts to come in and this dread starts to take hold in your stomach. And then as a, as a, as a college student watching the most valuable financial thing that you're in charge of in your life be carried out to sea. 
pain, embarrassment, this sort of like shake your head amazement of all of it, I, I think about th- those feelings that they must have felt. And in my mind, honestly, because the story, I wasn't there. So the two moments go right next to each other. Like I have the moment where they're like riding, you know, arm up on the window hair, you know, just like the amazing feeling of the, the, the few hours before and then the sinking feeling. And they're just right next to each other. And that reminds me of the thing that brings me back uh, to the thing that Buzz, the father uh, of the boy who lost the Jeep, said about the prophets. He said this. He said, in Israel's prophetic tradition, you will often see a prophet dealing with points in the past and in the future, like peaks on a mountain range that stretches out before your vision forward and behind your vision uh, in, in the rear. So basically, you can see this mountain range stretching out before you, and you know there's a lot of space in between the peaks of these mountains, but sometimes the prophets will deal with the peaks alone as these future events stretch out in front of us and these past events, and they don't necessarily go all the way down into the valley of every single thing that's going on. But you see different peaks, past events, present moments, future fulfillment in the space of a single section of writing. You think about those guys basically in that one day in these two peak moments of how they would have felt incredibly different. And, and the prophets are doing that sometimes. They're, they're dealing with the present political or military situation that Israel's facing right in front of them. And they're dealing with hundreds of years later how God is going to keep his covenant promises, how he's going to fulfill the promises he made all the way back to Abraham. Then you, they extend backwards and say, hey, don't forget you're not the first group of people that have ever faced a situation like this. And they'll extend the mountain range in this direction. And, and that helped me, especially when you come to a book like Isaiah and the different uh, sort of prophetic words. And it's like, how on earth does, does this help the people right in the moment that they're hearing this? And then how does it, how do you see the fruition come later? And how does Isaiah remind us of what's, what's come in the past? This is actually what's happening for us in Isaiah 9. And this famous poem that we read around the holidays quite often. Isaiah is giving the word of the Lord to a nation that is under siege. To a nation that, some of which have already been carried off into exile. Jerusalem, where Isaiah is writing, is already surrounded by, uh, by enemies, and these enemies have already routed their neighbors, routed some of their countrymen. The Assyrians are on their door. They're a dominant military force and Israel's in serious trouble. So what do you need when a a, a more dominant military force is bearing down on you and your destruction seems basically imminent? What what do you need in 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 that moment? A poem, right? Flowers, I don't know, like, is there anything less practical than you could give uh, a people that are facing uh, a battle with impossible odds than a poem? This is a little bit like the scene in Titanic where they play the violin as the ship is going down. It's like, I appreciate sort of the courageous gesture here, but you're not fixing the patch in the, in, in the, in the, in the ship. We're still sinking. Uh, Leo is still freezing in the water. But the prophet steps up and he gives them a poem anyway. The content of the poem takes them 
It sort of pans back to the mountain range and gives them moments in the past and it takes them forward to moments of the, of the future. And essentially what the poem, the content of the poem is doing is reminding them that as perilous as the very moment they seem to be in is, that it's not everything. That there have been situations that are like this that have come before, that actually God's plan and promises extend into the future, even if you can believe it, beyond the tyranny of this urgent moment for them. That God is doing something in the larger story of the world. And, and, and although we can perceive what we would imagine we need really specifically, God's working at times on a timeline with, with a different arc. And that's not to make the disappointment of that any less. We've been in a, in a class. I can't commend it to you enough. We've had two weeks of this class before church on Sundays as we're moving through Advent. It's called How Long, O Lord? And it's specifically about dealing with those times in our lives and those times in the lives of those in the scripture when we feel like we need something very specific from God and we get something different. We need military rescue and we get a poem. We need a warrior and we get a baby. And so we've been, we've been talking about how do you process that? Because if you haven't run into one of those moments where God didn't do exactly what you wanted, maybe you haven't been paying attention very much. So I, I encourage you, if you haven't checked it out yet, come next week. It's week three of our How Long, O Lord class, 9, 9 a.m. before church. Um, th th then you get the hottest coffee in the building. So the prophet gives them a poem right in the middle of, of this military siege that they are in the middle of. He backs them up. He pans out on this mountain range of God's promises, on this mountain range of different peaks of God's activity. One of the most helpful commentators on the prophecy of Isaiah is a man named Alec Moyer, and he says uh, this. It puts the poem in some context. Listen to this. As always, the people of God must decide what reading of their experience they will live by. As they look, are they to look at the darkness, the hopelessness, the dream shattered and conclude that God has forgotten them? Or are they to recall his past mercies, to remember his present promise and to make great affirmations of faith? Isaiah insists here that hope is a present reality, part of the constitution of the now. The darkness is true, but it is not the whole truth and certainly not the fundamental truth. Advent is a season where we look at the darkness of the world, honestly, where, where hopefully we're able even to look at the darkness of our own lives, our own present circumstances, our own moods and emotions. Some of us were just singing like, God, even when I don't have enough, I'm going to, 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 to trust you. What does that really look like? That, that, that's a that's the type of thing we press into in Advent. I know some of your, your lives, I know my own life, some of you are in real specific places of feeling like you don't have enough, like you need God to come through, like your life feels a little bit like you're trapped in a city that's surrounded. Isaiah says hope is still a present reality. It is part, I love this, part of the constitution of now. The darkness is true, but it is not the whole truth. And certainly not the, the fundamental truth. And so whatever else Isaiah is, uh, the most prolific uh, of Israel's prophets, uh, maybe one of the most poetic, he switches between the history of prose and, and poetry, uh, but he's an Advent prophet. He's a prophet that helps us live 
in the tensions. He's a beleaguered man, a beleaguered prophet in a war-torn time. There are defeats all around him, and yet he's calling people to say there's something more happening here. There's something on the way. You can, you can have hope anyway. You can say hallelujah anyway. We might be in one particular valley or one, even one particular peak on the mountain range, but it's not everything. We don't have to give in to the tyranny of our present moment or the urgency of our present mood. So, the prophet will not let us immortalize just one day and say that it's everything. He or she will, 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 not, will not let us forget what God has done or what God is doing and how those things come to bear on our present. Don't forget the mountain range. Buzz McNutt. Don't forget the mountain range. So we have the seven verses of a poem. Israel surrounded, and uh, Isaiah goes back poetically and, help, and says, hey, hey, don't forget the Exodus. He goes back to a specific battle after, after uh, Israel had come out of slavery in Egypt and they were being established in the promised land. This battle of, of Gideon and, and, and the defeat at, 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 uh, where they defeated the Midianites. He goes back to King David. He looks forward hundreds of years, millennia, to the Messiah. And he even goes past Jesus' time to a future beyond. All of that in seven verses of one poem. So each of these Sundays of Advent, that's what we're going to be trying to do. We're going to try to see the overlap of this mountain range and how these things impact one another. How the coming of Christ was hoped for how it was expected, how that arrival was realized, how Christ has been promised to come back. That's something we don't talk about very much. Something about like Christianity in the 80s and 90s, like we got out these prophecy charts and people started talking about like specific dates about when God was gonna come back and like things got weird, let's be honest. A couple decades of things getting weird. And one of the fruits of that is that people don't talk about Christ returning at all now because it's like too weird. Like, it's like, all, you know, all of a sudden I'm thinking about Kirk Cameron and the Left Behind series. It's bizarre. So we don't talk about the Lord coming back anymore because it's like, oh, man, are you one of those Christians or something like that? But Advent is a season where throughout all its history, the church has not just remembered that Christ has come, as powerful as that is, as a confirmation of God's promises, but that Christ is coming. And, and here's where it matters. is because the world, if you haven't noticed, even though Christ has come, is not as it should be. It is still tremendously broken. We still deal with radical disappointment. We still have injustice all around. We still, we still deal with, with, with racism and greed and lust and wars running rampant. And even though Christ has come, and I really believe that even you, Trinity Grace Park Slope, represent an outpost of the kingdom of God, represent the possibility and potential that the character and love and mercy and forgiveness and justice and truth of God can be represented in, 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 a, in a small way that we can actually be the body of Christ and not just us, but the church down the street and the church across the river and and the church across the country and the church across the world that were these little outposts of the kingdom of God, but we're still praying what Jesus taught his disciples to pray, would your kingdom as a whole come on earth as it is in heaven? Because even though Christ is bringing redemption and we're, we're swept up in that movement, we still need healing in our world. Like there's still hungry people, there's still hurting people, there's still brokenness, and we can rush out in, in the spirit of Christ and in that love and, and hopefully be a, a part in small ways in our relational spheres and our cities of the light coming, but there's, 
a real substantial need for God to make the world right. So we can't let the weirdness, I don't know what you grew up, maybe, maybe you don't have this, this baggage at all, but we can't let any weirdness knock us off of our place of hope that Christ is going to return and set the world right. And when I was a kid, that inspired terror in me. <laughs> and now there is, although it's certainly mysterious, there is an ache of longing. Ah, <laughs> uh, would you make the world right? That's the work of Advent. You want an Advent prayer? It's come, Lord Jesus. And we're really good at looking at the, at the Gospels and saying, come, Lord Jesus, because like we kind of know what the story's all about. But when we look at our present moment and out into the future, the mountain range stretching that way, can you say, will you say, do you say, come, Lord Jesus? This is a tension that we live in in Advent. I, I, I love Fleming Rutledge. Um, she was, uh, helped inspire the title for our series, Our Once and Future Hope. She's given some of the best... Um, sermons on Advent, actually, if you can believe it, preaching in the 80s in Manhattan. Uh, she's phenomenal, and she has a book called Advent, um, uh, the, the, the Once and Future Coming of Jesus, and she says this about the tension of the season. In a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. It can well be called the time between, because the people of God live in the time between the first coming of Christ incognito in the stable in Bethlehem and his second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. In the time between, our lives are hidden with Christ. She goes on, the yearly frenzy of holiday time in which the commercial Christmas music insists that it's the most wonderful time of the year and Starbucks invites us to feel the merry, the disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterizes life in this present world is held in dynamic tension, which the promise of future glory that is to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. So, we're gonna try to live in that tension for a couple of weeks together. I hope you're up for it. I wanna say a few things about this poem that comes in the middle of, uh, of a surrounded and besieged um, city. Uh, I, I want you to see what it says about the coming of Christ and how it might bear on us having some hope that Christ is, is going to return. Uh, we're gonna do all of that remarkably quickly because it's Advent, okay? So we're gonna get right into the poem. Here's, the, here's how the poem is set up. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. So I, I mentioned that uh, Isaiah is a, a prolific, uh, poetic uh, prophet. He, he alternates between uh, hit, prose history and then, and, then, and then poetry, back and forth between uh, his, his poetic address. And so this is the few sentences that sets up the poem that we, that we just read. And what you need to know about, about this as far as context is that the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali had already fallen. So the armies of the, the Assyrians are coming down and they've already conquered the land to the north of Jerusalem, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. They've already fallen. So right in the place uh, where the fate seems to have already been the most sealed, God was not finished. 
In fact, even in the place where it's like, oh, the story's already been written, th- these people have already been conquered, God is still uh, go- going to, to do something. And then specifically, that's not just going to benefit Israel and Israel's story and Israel's covenant promises that go back to Abraham, but it's literally gonna spill over the banks of Israel and go to the nations. Where, where, where it says, um, he will honor Galilee of the nations, that specifically means he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles, those that had already fallen from that very region where the fate seems to be sealed, God is gonna bring a Messiah who will be the rescuer of Israel, but who will also speak a word of hope to the nations. That's the context that sets up. There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Then, then mentions those conquered regions. It says something's coming. The poem goes on. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, literally the translation there is of death darkness. It's like super dark. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So, Isaiah's writing to a besieged city surrounded by a more powerful army that's already conquered their, their countrymen to the north. And he's saying something is coming that's going to change things, that in the middle of this deep darkness, a light is dawning. And then he begins to, to call Israel's attention back to the mountain range that extends beyond, behind them. And he, and he has references to the Exodus. Remember when you were in slavery to the most powerful empire in the world and God stepped in and redeemed you? But specifically, we have a direct recalling of a time when Israel was outnumbered intentionally. If you want to read the story of Midian's defeat, you can go back to Judges 6 through 8. Nice light reading for this afternoon if you're into it. If this sermon's not quite enough for you, you're like, I wish it was longer. I get it. We have this, this uh, battle that's going on and Israel's already outnumbered and Gideon, I named my, I named, I named my last, my, my uh, fourth child Gideon after this story, Gideon Champ Clardy, um, because uh, I, I just love the faith that, 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 that's demonstrated here. But, but Israel's outnumbered, Gideon rallies an army together and God's like, too many. It's like, what? He takes them through this strange drinking ritual by which he reduces the army down to just a couple of hundred people. And he says, all right, now you're enough. Why on earth is he doing that? Because he wants them to see that the, the victory is not coming because they have superior military strength. You can't, because you can't equate the victory that God is going to be bringing you here, Gideon, with your own uh, uh, ability, uh, uh, you know, w- warrior, ferocity, whatever it is. This is a gift from God because... Why is that important? (laughs) Because the way God is going to redeem and change the world is not through war and violence. And he he, he, he works in Israel's story over and over again with the reality that they are in the middle of, but he's always promising that there's another way coming. So God pared down the army again and again in the story of Gideon and Midian's defeat until it was utterly clear that the victory wasn't the might of the warriors but a gift from God. And in this poem, what you see 
is in the same way that God was counted on then, Isaiah's trying to stir up their hope that he can be counted on in this very moment. And what the picture is that, that the people kind of wander onto the battlefield after a battle's already fought, and what they find are these, these implements of warfare. There's boots on the ground, and there's, there's, there's clothes that have been, that have been torn. That are, that there's, there's blood on them. There's literally implements of warfare, and you're, you're just... You're, 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 our poetic imaginations are to be stirred up and, and just picture walking through and all of this being gathered up and being fuel for a bonfire, that the boots are thrown in the fire, that the implements of warfare are thrown in the fire and God is saying as clearly as he can, this is not the way forward. I'm bringing a new way into the world. The poem seems to suggest that the way out of the cycle that we find ourselves in is not just one more powerful army that will fix things for a certain group of people for a generation, but that God is going to win the type of, 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 of victory that results in yokes being shattered, in war boots being useless, and there being a harvest of peace. You're like, that sounds unrealistic. Well, wait till you hear how it's gonna happen. The method is even more unrealistic. For, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. How is God going to make it so that a victory is so substantial as one that you could walk through a battlefield and collect all the implements of warfare and put them in one place and burn them as a bonfire because you don't need them anymore, anymore because a new way has broken into the world? A baby is going to come. Just so we don't forget the context, can you imagine being in a city surrounded by an army that outnumbered you and hearing a poem as consolation and then listening long enough to know this poem is about a baby? Fantastic. Nine months from now, they won't be able to help us. He'll be an infant that has to have every single one of his needs met by someone else. Like, should we just walk out of the, of the walls of the city with flowers in our hands? But Isaiah doesn't bat an eye. This is the prophetic courage of an Advent prophet. Israel was in the predicament they were in, by the way, because they kept choosing the way of war. They kept believing that it was just this next stronger army is gonna be the thing that sets us free. They kept choosing the way of war. They kept choosing the way of selfishness. They had all the way back to Abraham a prophetic calling and vocation to be Yahweh's people in the world that were a light shining, that were demonstrating the heart of God, that were showing this is what the kingdom of God looks like when God is in the middle of a people that are following him. And yet over and over they abandoned that vocation for the way of the a war, the way of selfishness, the way of greed, the way of violence, the way of lust, the way of, and Isaiah addresses this, the way of pretend worship, like they pay lip service to God, like they show up on Sunday, but their lives have no bearing whatsoever that they are walking in the way of the kingdom. They kept choosing this way of pretend worship where in real life they were settling over and over for all these God substitutes, all these idols. That's why they were in the situation where they're surrounded and outnumbered and why God, instead of giving them a stronger army, gives them a poem about a baby. They, they kept forgetting who they were and living like their neighbors who didn't know God. And, and life on life's terms in that situation left, led them to battle after battle. So you can see Isaiah's giving them this poem about a baby kind of to shake them awake, like the most unexpected thing comes. I think some of us need to hear that. Week one of Advent, 
We're starting the 12th month of this year. What we're long, some of us need to hear that what we're longing for cannot be arrived at the way we are going. That's what the shock of this poem says to those who received it. You're surrounded. Here's a poem about a baby. You're not gonna get where you're trying to go this way. You're gonna have to adopt an entirely new method. You're gonna have to adopt an entirely new way in the world. Some of us are like, I want the fruit of the spirit. I, or basically, never mind the fruit of the spirit. I want love and joy and peace, please and thank you, and goodness and, and faithfulness. I'd like some self-control. I'm about to make some resolutions in a month. I, I, I'd like some, some, some goodness. And just, like, I'd like to be surrounded by rich community and meaningful work. Like We want the things that, that are, are meant to come from God, and yet we're trying to get them entirely out of our own resources. This is the human struggle over and over again. I want the fruit of the Spirit, but I keep looking in the garden of self, in the garden of vanity. and I keep trying to pull from the tree of accomplishment or wandering through the vineyard of lust or indulgence or distraction. And I need a little, I think that I need God to show up and knock down some walls and push back some people and make some space for me. And instead he gives me a poem about a baby. He says, hey, there's a whole other way. There's a whole other way. You're not going to get where you're trying to go down this path. Walk with me. So the prophet says the most absurd thing. A child is coming. At least what this means for me is that my best assessments of what I need sometimes are wrong. And that learning to trust God, learning to have faith, means learning to know that my moods and circumstances aren't everything and that sometimes there's a larger story with peaks stretching in both directions, a whole mountain range that I need to remember. Now here's the thing. If you, if you look into the context behind this poem in Isaiah, God does not bail Jerusalem out. They do get carried off into exile. The poem about the baby is given and the, and, and the result that they were hoping wasn't going to happen actually happens anyway. But then... On the peak stretching forward, hundreds of years later, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 12, it says this. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the, in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Centuries later, how long are you willing to wait? Centuries later, after Isaiah's, Isaiah's battle poem about the baby, this grown-up child walks onto the scene and says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. The way of God, cutting against the way of the world, is breaking in. And look at the details of, of when. <laughs> right when he hears the prophet, John the Baptist, who, who the New Testament tells us has come in the spirit of Elijah, right when John the Baptist has been put in jail. And guess what happens to John the Baptist? He does not get out of jail. 
right in the place where the Assyrians are long gone. Actually, the land of Naphtali and Zebulon wasn't conquered anymore by the Assyrians. They had been replaced by the Romans. Right in in that place where that could still be called the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The kingdom of God bizarrely looks like this sometimes, and Advent is a time where we have to remember that. You think you need a battle cry, and you get a poem. You think you need a hero warrior, and you get a baby. We think we need a military victory to oust the oppressors, to push back those who don't think the way that we do. And yet Messiah lays down in front of the tank. Messiah goes to the cross, dies a death, and then comes up behind death from the other side. Because the kingdom of God is not just about victory in one present circumstances. It's not just about unraveling the the, the violence of one particular era for one group of people and giving them the upper hand through, through superior strength. The kingdom of God is unraveling this entire spell of selfishness and violence that has defined our story from the beginning. It is winning a victory through loving weakness and not pride oozing strength. Could we hear that as a culture today? The victory is not to who shouts the loudest, but to who loves the most. It is not the way of the world. And in some ways, it is absurd to need a battle cry and get a poem, to need a warrior and get a baby. So the Advent prophet reminds us, we don't always know exactly what we need, what can bring real lasting victory, potential of an actually changed world. It's Advent So I have a new sort of like supply of credits to use C.S. Lewis quotes and sermons, and I'm gonna use one now. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into, into humanity, down further still, if embryologists are right, to recapitulate in the womb ancient and pre-human phases of life, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. He goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has a, has a picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. A child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. A whole new way of being human is is being established in the most bizarre and counterintuitive backwards kingdom of God, not kingdom of the world way possible. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now we're looking even beyond the Gospels. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Pastor Clore said he's coming back on a white horse on a robe dipped in blood. I'm not sure about the imagery, but he's coming back. Because he's going to establish this kingdom of peace. 
It says the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God is not finished. That's what Advent says. Come, Lord Jesus. That's our Advent prayer. God is not finished. God is still remaking the world. This child has grown up has died and resurrected, has given the kingdom over to these people who are are meant to walk in this way of Jesus and and the promises that he's going to return. And if that seems crazy to you, that's okay. It's about like getting a poem in the middle of a battle, needing a hero and getting a baby. But this God does keep his promises. Crazy promises, like one to an unmarried teenager named Mary, The word zeal in that last verse has an interesting translation. Other places in the the Hebrew scriptures, it's translated jealousy. Like the deepest swirling passion of God is to accomplish this very thing. And even though the results don't come through in, in the timely fashion that we can imagine we need them. I know I need a battle cry. Why are you giving me a poem? I know I need a hero warrior. Why are you giving me a baby? But the zeal of the Lord Almighty is going to accomplish these things. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, we advent. We come to know God on these terms. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. We press in, we say, My best reading of my mood and circumstances, my best reading of the situation I'm in, my best reading is not gonna be thorough enough. The way that I I want to get at the life that I'm after, I, I believe that I'm gonna need some help beyond just my natural resources. And so what type of God can I come to know? Well, you can come to know this God who's breaking into the world as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Do you know God... Is happy to be this in your life? A God who can speak a wisdom that's beyond just what you can see, a supernatural wisdom into the real life circumstances, a wonderful counselor, a mighty God who's strong enough not just to make promises but to keep them, even if they don't track exactly along the lines of our, of our natural expectations, moods or circumstances, but we also not, we don't just have a mighty God, we have an everlasting Father who's, who's offering us this embrace of sonship and daughtership and saying, be brought into my family forever, who loves us in this gracious covenant way of family. A prince of peace who can make what is true of his very nature be true of us. Who can bring our lives and our world to a place of shalom. That is our Advent hope. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm gonna pray for you in one one moment. I wanna just invite you, let's have those titles of God back on the screen for a second. Yeah. We're gonna come just like we always do to this, to this meal. We're gonna worship, we're gonna sing, we're gonna pray. But I just wanna have these on the screen for a moment so you can say, is there a way you need God to give counsel in your life? Is there a way you need to know the strength of God today? Is there a way that you need to know God as a, as a loving father? Is there a way that you need the, the, the peace of God that transcends human understanding to break in in your life? You can call on God in any of these ways. He's promised to operate 
according to these revealed truths about, about his identity. So I want to invite you to respond today. And then not to get too mechanical, but every season in the life of our church, we, we, we began this, this fall. So this is our second season doing it. Of course, there's hundreds of ways that you can follow Jesus in your life between now when you leave this and you come back next Sunday, right? But we're trying to have two shared ways that we practice following Jesus together as a church every season. So for Advent, we have two things. One is a daily spiritual practice and another is a love and action practice. We're thinking about this like one is inhale and one is exhale. So every single day, you can inhale the reality of God as these things. Every single day, you can exhale the love of God in tangible ways that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus. So our two shared practices for Advent are inhale silence and solitude. I know it's like you said one and that seems like two. Silence and solitude, to get away each day and find just a small bit of sanctuary in the frenzy of the season, to be alone and to be silent to ask God to speak. We do so much talking to do some listening, to push back on the frenzy of the season. And then the love in action practices generosity. We obviously have this shared thing that we're collecting a bunch of money as a church to give away next year. The Christmas offering is a part of that, but I'm talking also about personal generosity that God would pour out of your life secret blessings. Nobody has to know about them. The, the person that you pass on your commute that you give to, the person that you listen to, the person at your office, the person in your life group, the friend. Like, what ways is God stirring you to be generous? We're trying to be formed into the way of Jesus together. So we're gonna respond today to the revelation of God as this. We're gonna respond throughout Advent in silence and solitude and generosity together. And, and as we do this, what we're saying, what we're praying, is come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, show up in the silence, show up in the need, show up right now in this room. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, it amazes me that you can know all the intricacies of what each person in this room is going through. You know the people who are struggling financially. You know the people who are wrestling with a depression that they just feel like is not going to break. You know the people who are, who are, are aching from a broken relationship. You know the people who are absolutely stressed out because of a work deadline. You know the people who are, who are weighed down by shame because they made a mistake they swore they weren't gonna make anymore. God, you know every detail of what we're dealing with. I pray in Jesus' name that you would reveal yourself to us by the Holy Spirit as a wonderful counselor, as a mighty God, as everlasting Father, as a Prince of Peace, wherever we need you this morning, I pray you would reveal yourself. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. Show us how we are to respond today and each day. We pray the prayer of Advent. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.